Uh, let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us together to the, uh, this day, and thank you so much for this opportunity to illumine, open our minds, and open our hearts with uh, new perspectives and uh, your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Um, I, I, John just prompted me to um, remind everybody that there's a big group of people from this church going to Israel next February, in case you hadn't heard of that. And John Guy is going with us, and, uh, and there are a number of folks in the room that are going on the trip too. So if you have any questions, I'd be happy to entertain them at the uh, end of the class before the service. The other thing is, John, I wanted to suggest that you introduce your colleague here. Um, some of us were not here for the first session, and so um, operating at a little bit of a disadvantage. I've heard great things, but I want to know the whole story. Well, I won't, what Thank is that you. called? The whole, uh, the whole uh, Megillah, right? The whole Megillah, that sounds good. We're not gonna get the whole Megillah, but you get a part of the story. Uh, my colleague, Zev Rosenberg, I'm delighted to introduce you to him and delighted to be privileged to teach with him. I first met Zev uh, two years ago, 2013. I had heard of him for many years because uh, two members of the Congress Lake uh, study cohort that was associated with um, Logos Institute, uh, Joe and Charlene Bridges used to attend a church that Zev Rosenberg was the rector, priest, pastor of an Episcopal church here in town. So I heard about Zev for many years, but I never had the privilege of meeting him. But then in 2013, uh, Joe and Charlene invited Zev to come to our Congress Lake cohort which is a pretty serious group of people who study the Bible pretty seriously. And uh, so Zev came and we had just started the book of Hebrews. So it was like perfect timing. So the expert on Hebrews came to study with us. It was beautiful. And so then we went on for the whole year. Then we immersed ourselves in another book of the New Testament, the book of Matthew, which is another book written, tailored to Jewish people, the Jewish message about Jesus for Jewish people. And we studied that one. And Zev has <coughs> uh, joyfully become my co-teacher in that class. And then uh, I can't tell you all the details about how this came up, but we had gone through Hebrews together and we decided it would be a good thing to teach, and the authorities that exist at this church said, uh, how do you say kosher? <laughs> kosher, okay. <laughs> so it was koshered in. Now, uh, Zev, as you will find out, is a highly educated person. He's gone to a number of great colleges. Uh, Carleton, for one, is a fine institute. He studied at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem number of other schools, very well learned, uh, and just so much fun to teach with him because there'll be many times when we are talking about things in a study and our, did you ever have this happen to you when your mind with another person just goes boom, boom? You've, you've had that happen? Yes, this happens all the time with Zev and I and he will think of a scripture that I was gonna suggest, and I think that happens sometimes with him. So that's so much fun to teach with somebody like that. So, um, a wonderful man, and I think you should come up and chat with him as much as you can. Uh, one thing I know about Zev is he definitely likes to eat. You don't, John? Uh, what? 
Oh, oh, no, I like to eat too, but, you know. But Zev would love to go out to eat with you. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, he's a friendly guy, so try to make it an attempt to get to know him and his life story because it's very meaningful. Okay, so how's that? Pretty good? You could ask him more questions, too, when he's teaching. All right, well, here's what I want to do just before Zev comes to teach today from Hebrews 3 and 4. Uh, I gave you the first week a handout that is entitled A Historical Analogy That May Help Us. May Help Us Understand the Letter to the Hebrews in a Postmodern Age. Does everybody have that? How many do not have it? Okay, so here's the way you can get it. Um, You can write to... um, If you write to the email, well, you don't have the email. How can they get it? Send it to C.A. Friley, F-R-I-L-E-Y, at AOL.com, and we'll get you. Oh, Yahoo.com. That's really clear. It's it's on the website, too. On the Christ, Christ Presbyterian Church website, it's on there. You can download it. And we'll try to have some more copies next week. But today, I'll just give you like some pictures on the board to help you. And here are the two passages that I'd like you to look at uh, in the Gospel of John 8. Sorry. uh, 36 through 38. I want to read to you a short passage that is an interview that Jesus had with Pilate. I'm going to not introduce you, but I want to point out to you two historical figures in just a few minutes. And if you understand this mindset of these two historical figures, you can really understand uh, some of the issues that were going on in the first century with the letter of Hebrews. But you can really understand issues that are going on in our culture today as we try to, in the 21st century, present what the book of Hebrews is saying and have it make sense in our culture. I hope that makes sense to you. Here's Jesus interviewed by Pilate, uh, verse 35 of chapter 18. Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priest have delivered you unto me. Uh, What have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I would not be delivered to the Jews, but now is my kingdom not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, well, then you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. To this end I was born, and for this cause I came into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, Quiest veritas. <laughs> it's much better in Latin, my Italian friends. Quiest veritas. What is truth? Now, how do you think he said it? Was it in a sincere inquiry? Because, you know, this is a semantic amphiboly. It's got a couple nuances. Did he say, well, well what is truth? Oh, so you think he was cynical about it? Yeah, right. What is truth? You think that way? Uh, Angry? 
See, it's so funny, you know, when you read words on a page, you just don't have the nuance that you need sometimes to really figure out what was being said there. But would you think it would be probably true that Pilate, being a political leader in the largest and most educated culture of his day, would he understand and know that there were many worldviews, religions, and uh, all kinds of other views out there that people were making claims to know what? The truth. And so as a civil authority, what is Pilate's truth? Uh, yes, uh, might makes right. Roman law is the social truth that we're going to live by doesn't want to really get involved in this religious metaphysical thing. There's a split between the truth. So you notice the progression here, though. So from Jesus' point of view, there's this thing called capital T, the, capital T, truth. Now that's inherent to uh, Jesus' worldview. That's inherent to the writer of Hebrews' worldview. It's a big idea. This is, this is increasingly foreign in our, our culture today. So the truth. Pilate's progression, his thing is he doesn't even use the, he just says what? Truth? I don't know if there is such a thing as truth or what is it, who, who knows? So we've made a big move there. Uh, interesting. Uh, what's the motto of Harvard University? Veritas. Veritas. Truth. It used to be, when it started, does anyone know? Say again. Loose at Veritas. Uh, it did have the light concept in it, but it also had truth in Christ and in the church originally. So when you say that, when you say truth in Christ and in the church, now you're making a power statement, right? You're making an advocacy statement. You're making a professional statement. You're saying we hold the truth as we understand it to be in Christ and in the church. That's a truth claim. But when you just, when you take that out, and I think it was in the 1800s, I'm not faulting them, by the way. This is descriptive, okay? Not judgmental. Just showing you how things have changed. So when they went, they took that out, and then they just said truth. Now what happened? Uh, well, what, what do you relate? Exactly, brilliant. What do you relate it to? You relate it to the open-ended pursuit of truth with no claims to what? To having arrived. It's not defined. So now it becomes an aspiration rather than an acquisition. Does that make sense? Now we're understanding the modern era. Okay, so now we've made that move. Now, let's go over to the next person that you need to understand if you want to understand something of this mindset. And this is this man named Gallio. Uh, it's in Acts 18, 14 through 16. Uh, I'm only going to read a snippet of it. Now, Gallio was the brother of Seneca, the well-known uh, poet, rhetorician, scholar, uh, Gallio is a well-known historical figure. We found an inscription with his name from Augustus 
in Delphi. We know he was proconsul in Achaia in Greece, 51-52. We know this event took place in 51-52, as well as we know anything from the ancient world. This is stone-cold history. So Paul is there announcing Jesus in Corinth, 51-52. A big disputation arises over uh, uh, whether Jesus really is the Jewish Messiah. Some Jewish people get quite upset with Paul. There's a disturbance. They haul the entire assembly before this Roman proconsul, Gallio, and he now has to decide what's going on. So here's what his response is after everyone has had their say. Listen to his language carefully. If you Jews were making a complaint about, and don't take that as a negative against Jewish people. He could have been saying, if you Greeks, if you Italians, if it was any ethnic group, he's just labeling them because that's the proper thing to do in the context because it's a legal hearing. If you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be what? Reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words, names, and your own law, settle that yourselves. And I love the King James that says, and he drove them away from the seat. I mean, what do they call those guys that are in the court? The, the uh, bailiffs. They must have had some big, burly Roman bailiffs just to drive everybody off, and he doesn't even want to deal with it. So what's the mindset? You can see the Greco-Roman mindset has produced over the previous 500 years a settled disposition, and what is it? Uh, regarding truth. Uh, there is such a thing as Roman law, and it has been codified and pounded out on the anvil of human history for a long time, and it has been reduced down to those common things that everybody must agree in common together to be a Roman citizen or live under the rule of Rome. They're reduced, they're, they're, they're at the core, they involve things that are rationally de derived, you don't need a book to tell you not to murder, not to steal, blah, 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 these are codified laws. Now what's their attitude about all this other stuff? The religious, the words, the disputations, the Messiah, the, the mystery truth, ISIS, Separation of... Believe whatever you want to believe. We don't care what you believe. As long as what? You, you don't mess with Roman law. So you can be a good Roman citizen and believe the craziest things as long as you don't challenge Roman law. So now, instead of uh, truth per se, we have now come to what? Tr little t, truths little t truths, and some of them, there's a wall, some of them apply to what? Uh, this world, our society, the way we conduct ourselves as human beings, right? And then these other little t truths, we can't call them the truth because all these people are running around, they're all claiming to have the truth, and you know, who knows the truth, right? So all these little religious truths, the modern, the ancient secular attitude, and increasingly, the modern secular attitude says what? It, it, that, is that your truth? <laughs> Good, I'm happy. Good for you. You found your truth. Wonderful. But, but I don't want to hear what? Uh, you don't want to hear an authoritative explanation of truth in this way? 
I don't want to hear an explanation of universal truth that, that is, becomes my truth because, no, we have little t truths in the religious realm. We have little, le, little t truths in the legal realm. As long as it's legally established, then that's what we all agree on. Yes, sir. Well, it was a growing phenomenon, but certainly it became really manifest in the realm of Augustus. Yeah. So that would be right around the birth of Jesus. And as Augustus grew in power, he kind of got weirder and weirder, and by the end of his life, yes, there was the cult of the worship of the emperor. Then it became formalized, and that's when the pressure really got put to the Christians. Okay, so why am I telling you all this? Because I think you can see that in the first century, there was a mindset that prevailed that's very similar to the mindset that we live in in our uh, culture today, too. The idea that there is such a thing as the truth is rapidly faded away. Uh, It's hard to find people even that want to make the claim that there is such a thing as truth, like, you know, we can really find it. It's much more comfortable in our culture today to agree upon, well, there's a bunch of little truths out there, and some of them are legal, and that's the ones that we really need to focus on. And then over in this realm, everybody's free to do what? Believe whatever you want. Just don't put your bad trip on other people. That's the rule of the road. That's the one sin. So uh, into this culture and into our culture comes a point of view from the book of Hebrews that Zev is going to share with you, that here are people that believe there is such a thing as the truth. And it makes a big difference when you're studying something and that truth claim is hitting you. This isn't saying it's good advice, it's saying this is the truth. So with that, come and teach us, Zev. Okay, thank you, John. When he suggested that I might accept an invitation to eat, I I wanted to tell him, John, that is not exactly what Jesus meant when he talked about fishing. So, good morning, brothers and sisters of Jesus. How many of you actually thought of yourselves that way when you woke up this morning? Anybody think of yourself as a brother or sister of Jesus when you woke up this morning? Would that make a difference if you thought of yourself as a brother or sister of Jesus 24-7? In large measure, the discussion that we're going to have today is about what that means and who is and who is not. Uh, If I remember, I pointed out to you last week there was this handout that you received um, a comprehensive and chronological listing of other Older Testament passages cited in the letter to the Hebrews and down at the bottom it says page 15. Did you have a chance to look at those passages? How many people took a look at the passages? How many people think you don't have to do homework for Christian education? Oh my. 
Anybody try to cross-reference those passages, particularly the Psalms passages that John put on that handout? Okay, did you find something interesting? Okay, what was that? Oh, Cindy has extras if you need one. You had a little difficulty. What was the difficulty? What do you mean they weren't cross-referenced very well? They weren't the same. Okay. Why? What version of Psalms is being quoted by the author to the letter to the Hebrews? What version of Psalms is he using? Remember what we talked about the first session? No. The Greek, the Septuagint. If you had looked in the Septuagint Bible, you would have found the references are perfect because John is one of the cleverer teachers I've ever met. And he did that. He basically gave you the numbering for the Psalms in the Septuagint version of the book of Psalms and not in the versions that you have in your Bibles that are translate the Psalms from the Hebrew. But the ones that he has there, those are the exact correct references. I wanted to basically, I also asked you a couple of questions. And uh, if you remember correctly, if I remember correctly, sometimes that's a challenge too. Why the discussion of angels? And why these passages? Okay, why is it so necessary to prove that Jesus is superior to angels? Okay, why? Because there's a whole heck of a lot of angels and there's only one Jesus, okay? Okay, angels were created so they weren't God incarnate. These are some of the arguments, but why? Jesus was just a person. Jesus was, oh, he was just a human being. Right? Okay. So which is superior, human beings or angels? How many people think angels are superior? Yeah. How many people think human beings are superior to angels? How many of you don't care or are just being too cautious? What was your question? Jesus was the messenger. What else was Jesus besides being the messenger? He was the message. Ooh. He was not just the messenger, he was the message. 
Okay? The word angelos in Greek means messenger. Okay? Just as the word malach in Hebrew angelos in Greek Malach in Hebrew also means messenger. Okay? Now, the, the, the Older Testament is full of angels. All right? But why is it important to argue and to prove that Jesus ranks above angels? Can you think of reasons why? Yeah. Uh huh. Okay. And what message had they received from angels in the past? Ah, thank you. Give that person extra brownie points. What was the role of angels in Revelation? What was the role of angels in Revelation? What? No, but in God's revelation to humankind, what was the role of angels? What? To quote God? In other words, what did they do? They were messengers, so what did they do? They brought the message. Okay? In other words, the popular belief at this time is that prophecy essentially involved angels bringing messages to human beings. So now, why are we saying that Jesus is superior to the, to the angels? Okay, that's another argument as to how he's superior, but why do we need to argue that Jesus is superior to angels? Why? Because he spoke with authority and he said do things. Okay. He spoke with authority and said do things. Yes! If Jesus is not superior to the angels, what does that make of his message? As a matter of fact, that was a joke. Growing up, we used to say all the time, roses are reddish, violets are bluish. If it wasn't for Jesus, we'd all be Jewish. (laughs) Exactly. The whole proof... That Jesus is superior to angels has to be made so that it would be clearly understood. Because what was, who was the letter to the Hebrews? What group was he writing to? Jewish 
What, what about this particular Jewish group? They were converts to Christianity. What was the, what was the danger they were facing? Ah, they were in danger of lapsing back into Judaism. And so what he's starting off his letter by saying is, why do you want to lapse back into a message delivered by angels when this message that you've accepted comes from the one who created the angels? In other words, why do you want to go back to the second best? Okay, very important. So take a look in particular I'm in danger here of having too many bookmarks in my Bible. Okay. I want you to take a look at Hebrews Beginning in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Would someone like to read? We will bring you a microphone. Wait for the microphone, please. Thank you. Verses 1 through 4 in chapter 2. Therefore, we must pay the closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For if the message declared by angels was valid, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard him. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to his own will. Okay. In other words, do you see what the force of his argument is? This is a better revelation. This is a more thorough revelation. This has more authority. And therefore, don't drift away from it. Don't drift away from it in favor of something... That is lesser. That is lesser. Can anyone think of other reasons why it might be important? What I want you to do is think for a moment. You are a relatively fresh convert to the way from a Jewish background. But you're under a lot of pressure. Social pressures, political pressures, persecution, possible loss of property, possible eviction from the synagogue. And yet you've had a wonderful experience of Jesus, but you are really worried and you're thinking of going back to Judaism. Is there some way you can hold on to all of this? Is there some way especially of thinking about Jesus? Yeah? Mm-hmm. Remembering all the things that Jesus did that a normal human being couldn't do, but who might be able to do those? God, or? Who said an angel? Thank you. Why not just say Jesus was an angel? 
Okay? Because then you could hang on. These were people who wanted to believe that Jesus was more than human, but they wanted to fit that within the framework of Judaism so they wouldn't be thrown out of the synagogue. So simply say, oh, he was an angel. Isn't that a simple solution? What's wrong with it? It's not the truth. Okay, oh, what is truth? Okay, do you begin to see the relevance of this? The basic problem is it's not true to the whole experience that the apostles had had that this was coming directly from God. And what they had to do is he had to prove, in fact, not just that Jesus is superior to angels, but also that, look at chapter 2, verses 10 and following. Again, can someone read, please? All right. Yeah. He himself likewise shared the same things, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. Okay, that's good enough. In other words, what is he insisting upon about Jesus here? What is his point? Why not? Well, they don't have the power over death uh, and the power of redemption. Okay, that's, that's correct. But what is it he's saying here about Jesus, the person of Jesus as the com- community of the apostolic community experienced him? What did Jesus share? Flesh and blood. Ah! He was a real human being. He was a real flesh and blood human being, not an angel. Angels cannot share in flesh and blood. On the one hand, he is superior to an angel, but as he states earlier in this, we see him who for a while was made a little lower than the angels, i.e., a human being, and that's Jesus. He's basically hitting here on the whole essence of Christology, the basic understanding, 
that Jesus is at one and the same time divine and fully human. Why was it important for Jesus to be fully divine and fully human? Okay. But why? I mean, you, you just basically said it. Okay. Well, that way Jesus has some street cred. Street credit? Yeah, like he's relatable. That would be a very good modern way of putting it. Yeah, talk about street creds. Hi, gang. I know I look like a human being, but I'm really God. Power over death. Okay, power to redeem. Power to destroy sin. Power to overcome the devil. He has to be divine to do that. But who is he delivering? And we are human beings. Who doesn't get to be redeemed? Angels. There are two basic flavors that angels come in. And I'm not talking here about cherubim and seraphim and thrones, powers, dominions, powers, principalities, etc., etc., etc. Two basic flavors of angels. What are they? Fallen and unfallen. Exactly. Do the fallen angels get redeemed? No. Okay. Take a look at Matthew 25. I'm not going to go through the whole parable of the sheep and the goats, especially in deference to my spouse who always liked goats better than sheep anyway. Okay. But Matthew 25, just look at verse 41. Okay. Who would like to read? Verse 41, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Okay, for whom was hell prepared? For the devil and his angels. Was it prepared for human beings who blew it? No, it wasn't even meant for human beings. Hell is meant for Satan and his fallen angels. So, do they get redeemed? No way. Okay? No redemption for angels. On the other hand, unfallen angels, do they get redeemed? Why not? They don't need it. Okay? In other words, in some ways it's easier to be an angel. If you're unfallen, you don't need redemption. If you're fallen, you don't get redemption. If you're human, you need it and you can get it. Isn't that wonderful? Now who do you think is better off, angels or humans? Okay, go back again to Roman uh, to Hebrews. Okay. Zev, Yo. we have one question here. Hi. I have a, a quick, well, I don't know if it's a quick question, but you have said that 
Humans are lower than the angels, but the Bible says that we will rule over angels. Mm -hmm. Can you justify those two seemingly diverse comments? Thank you. Those wonderfully complementary statements of the truth that seem to contradict each other. Correct. Uh, One of the things that, to do this, we need to get a little bit further into our discussion about Moses. But basically... um, how does, in the section on Moses, how does the author to Hebrews describe us as the household of God, as the house of God? Okay, what is the function of the angels? What are they in relation to God? Servants. Okay, how many Downton Abbey fans do we have here? Any Downton Abbey fans? Come on. Don't be ashamed. It's your guilty pleasure. <laughs> Who has more glory and honor, Lord Grantham or Carson the butler? Lord Grantham, okay. Who does Carson the butler take his orders from? Just Lord Grantham? Pretty much everyone in the family. So what are angels in the household of God? They're the downstairs staff. Okay. The reason why the fallen angels rebelled is that they didn't want to be the downstairs staff. They wanted to be upstairs. But they don't get to be the, the Crawley family. Okay? They have to be the downstairs staff. Okay? So, yes, angels in some ways are superior to humans, but on the other hand, they are inferior to humans in that they are mere servants. And they are there to serve the household of God, and that includes us. Does that make sense? That's probably a good way to put it, okay? Because what happens is somebody loses their status in the family, in an aristocratic family. Where, where, where do they end up? Pretty much out on the street. On the other hand, what happens to a servant who messes up? If they get fired without a reference, what's likely to happen to them? The poorhouse. Okay? It was pretty rough on a servant in Edwardian England if you really messed up and got dismissed without a reference. It's a marvelous analogy. I really think, and and take a look at that analogy in terms of the relationship of human beings, particularly redeemed human beings and angels, if you really want to understand this hierarchy. And this is an important part because if you look at verse uh, chapter 2 verse 5 for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking okay what was it subjected to what was the world to come subjected to us Christ and Christ's brothers and sisters 
Okay. Real quickly, because I'm running over. Jesus is heir to all the promises of David. You know, I asked why those passages? Why the Psalms? Who was thought to have written all the Psalms? David. So this is David's testimony to the son's superiority over angels. Okay? The other two passages on that sheet, one from 2 Samuel, is from David's last testament. And the other one is from the middle of what is called the Emmanuel oracles in the book of Isaiah. Okay, so in other words, it's about the house of David. David himself testifies to the son's superiority. The son as creator and lord is superior to any mere messenger or servant. Therefore, revelation by the son is far superior to revelation by angels. And we, not angels, are fellow heirs with the Son to the kingdom of God. Do you think that might be a good reason tomorrow morning when you wake up to think of yourself as a brother or sister of Jesus? Claim the family privilege. Don't lapse back into the subject of a servant. And while we're on the subject of servants, we've got another servant to consider. And here is where, oh, the reason I put this up, this is the, the Septuagint version of Deuteronomy 33, 2b through 4. The Lord came down from Sinai and appeared to us from Seir. He hastened from Mount Paran along with myriads at Kadesh, angels with him at his right hand, And he spared his people and all the sanctified ones under your hands. Again, this is probably one of those sources of the belief that angels were agents of revelation from God. But also notice where were the angels in this passage from Deuteronomy? What? What? At God's right hand. Who do we believe is at God's right hand? Jesus. Okay. That brings us to Moses. Okay. What I want you to do is I want you to look at a couple of passages. One is in Numbers, which I know you all read assiduously every time it comes up in your annual Bible reading, along with Leviticus. How many people here enjoy Leviticus? You know, in a traditional Jewish education, when young Jewish boys are being initiated into the Torah, the first thing they learn is the book of Leviticus. If that doesn't scare them off, nothing will. Okay. Um, Okay, whoops. Numbers, numbers, numbers. Here we go. Okay, this is in the book of Numbers, chapter 12. And in particular, I'm looking at starting with verse 4. I mean, it's part of a a larger story. Miriam and Moses are basically giving, Miriam and Aaron are giving 
Moses a hard time over the Cushite woman he's taken his wife. Um, Already back in the time of Moses, we are beginning to have racism issues. And the Lord heard it. Now, uh, look at starting at verse 4. Would someone like to read verses 4 through 8? Thank you. Numbers 12, 4 through 8. Thank you. Oh, sorry. <laughs> at once the Lord said to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, Come out to the tent of meeting, all three of you. So the three of them came out. Then the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud. He stood at the entrance to the tent and summoned Aaron and Miriam. When both of them stepped forward, he said, listen to my words. When a prophet of the Lord is among you, I reveal myself to him in visions. I speak to him in dreams. But this is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak to face, clearly and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? Now there's a phrase here, how many, I don't know how many translated I have, mouth to mouth. I speak to Jesus mouth to mouth. Anybody else have a different version? Okay, now turn towards the very end of the book of Deuteronomy. And that's Deuteronomy 34. And we're going to look at verses 10 and 11. Any volunteers? Thank you, Leslie. Mm-hmm. 34, 10, and 11. Yeah, 34, verse 10 and 11. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, none like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land. Okay. In other words, what is this saying about Moses? He's faithful, but what is this saying about Moses in relation to the other prophets? He's superior, far superior. God doesn't speak to Moses in dreams and visions. God speaks to Moses face to face, mouth to mouth, Therefore, all of this talk about angels, what does this do? Where's the weakness when it comes to Moses? You could easily think what? Yeah, Jesus is superior to angels, but what about superior to Moses? Ah. Now, in those same passages, how is Moses described by God? As a servant where? <laughs> servant in the house of God. 
Okay, servant in the house of God. All right. So, what does that make Moses in relation to the other prophets? Hmm? He's still a servant. In other words, in our Downton Abbey application, Moses is Carson the butler. Oh, he's the chief servant. What is Jesus in respect of the household? He's the son and heir, but also who does it? What the brother? But no. But what else in relation to the house? Lord of the house. Why? He's the one in charge. How does he get the right to be the one in charge of the house? He built it. Thank you. He's the builder. He's the one who made the house. Okay. Moses is faithful as a servant in the house. Jesus is faithful over the house as son, heir, and builder. This is so important because, again, what are you in danger of doing if you're a person who's receiving this letter? Okay. You want to lapse back into Judaism? You want to lapse back into the Torah? Why are you taking your marching orders from Carson the butler instead of Lord Grantham? Okay? Moses was faithful in God's house as a servant. Jesus is faithful over God's house as a son and as the builder. We are God's household and fellow heirs with Christ provided. And now we get the whole point of everything we've been discussing. We remain believing. The exhortations that we find scattered throughout the letter to the Hebrews are in some ways the meat of the letter. Because what he's really trying to do, like the person said, is is uh, keep these people from backsliding into Judaism, which would be easy to do. I know, I've been there. Believe you me, I have been there. I know how attractive it can be to say, even when you're not under a lot of pressure, even when you're not being persecuted, uh, how easy it is to want to go back to Judaism. It's an incredibly rich cultural heritage. I can't begin to express it. In fact, uh, back when I was uh, in Temple Israel and living, you know, worshiping at Temple Israel, it was about the time Daniel Pearl uh, was martyred in uh, Pakistan and a book came out uh, responding to his last words, I am Jewish, and it was a collection of essays by people about what it meant to them to be Jewish. And uh, Rabbi Spitzer read a couple of these in a sermon that he was giving and encouraged each of us to sort of come up with our own response. And my own was, I have a goodly heritage. And it is true, it is a goodly rich heritage. It's wonderful. But a heritage is not meant to be a straitjacket. And as I said to somebody, my roots are Jewish, 
But the last time I looked at a tree, the direction of growth of the tree was not towards the roots. So, um, but in other words, you have to basically show this is a better revelation. In fact, and here is a key point, because this is something that is very important for us to understand in terms of how we relate in the modern world to the phenomenon of the rise of Islam. Because what he's saying is, Jesus is God's final revelation. This is it. Jesus is God's final revelation. So what happens when Muslims come along and say, no, Muhammad was God's final revelation. It's a cult. Yes, that's what we tend to say. Where did Muhammad how, who gave Muhammad his revelation? Uh, God. Through, through, through. Was it an angel supposedly? That, yes, I am Gabriel. Was, was oh, Gabriel. Okay. I am Jabril. Well, I guess, you know, we're pointing toward that battle of truth versus lie. Shall well, we, shall no, we all well, be is, Islamic supersedes yes. Judaism and Christianity? Because well, now Muhammad brought the final correct. Now, obviously, now I want to suggest something here, and this may be controversial to you. Obviously, um, for Jews and for Christians, we cannot accept the claim that Muhammad is God's final, ultimate revelation, the seal of the prophets, the greatest of the messengers. Does that mean that we have to dismiss him as a charlatan? No. Okay. It means he could be a prophet for a community that had no revelation and no book, as the Quran itself would express it. And in its part, even Muhammad himself said this. In fact, Jews don't really need Muhammad because they have a book. Christians don't really need Muhammad because they've got a book. But the Arabs didn't. Now they've got a book. Okay, so maybe that gives us a way of looking at how we understand the relationship of the Abrahamic faiths. It doesn't mean that we agree on everything, and it doesn't mean that we should agree on everything. But what we have to have is the confidence of our faith in Christ as the final revelation, but that doesn't mean that Muhammad did not receive a message from the angel Gabriel. Okay. That they believe. Okay. You know, I've been in the Middle East. I see how they act. Mm-hmm. They're under a lie spirit. My relative was blowed up in Afghanistan mm-hmm. for a lie spirit. So mm-hmm. you can believe whatever, obviously, you want to believe about. Yeah, I've been in the Middle East too. It's, that's why they want to kill Jews, and you should know that, mm-hmm. and Christians. So it's and a that is a minority of Muslims. I'm not saying there are not it's bad Muslims out there. That's all. 
Well, this, this really does highlight, though, <clears throat> the issues that we have in the 21st century. Uh, when people make truth claims that are what are known as exclusive, when you say the truth, it by logical force precludes other views from being the truth. That's mm -hmm. the danger that we live in in the 21st century, and we need to learn how to talk with one another. I think Zev's point is not to deny the, <clears throat> the truth that Jesus is the final truth. It's how do we learn to talk to other people who equally believe their revelation is the truth. That's, that's the big challenge, right? I agree. We, yeah, I we just say we should go chop their heads no, off. No, you I understand? Mean, I mean, you're, maybe you're pointing that it's a, it's a tool you're it's looking tool that you can come together to try to give them the wisdom of illumination. Now, only God's spirit can illuminate, though. I mean, but by your words, Christian words, we could say this is what we believe, and then the spirit will either convict them or they'll keep going with their lie. Okay. I think what I'm also saying, though, is that uh, Jesus put the bar pretty high when it comes to dealing with people who oppose us. Because what did he say to do about enemies? love them. Okay? Do not resist the one who is evil. Do you realize that up until Constantine made Christianity the religion of the empire, absolutely the entire Christian church was thoroughgoingly pacifist? Yes. Okay? If you were a Roman soldier who came to the church and said, I want to become a Christian. First of all, you didn't just waltz in and get baptized next Sunday. You had to spend two to three years in the catechumenate. And in order to be enrolled in the catechumenate, you as a Roman soldier had to take an oath that you would obey no order that involved the taking of a human life or the, an act of idolatry. Now, what were the functions of Roman soldiers? Killing people and participating in official state cult activities. In other words, you couldn't obey any orders of your superior officers as a Roman soldier if you wanted to be in the catechumenate. On the other hand, if you were a catechumen and you said, I want to go join the Roman army, what did they do? They booted you out of the catechumenate and barred you from baptism. Yeah? Uh, May one, I, one minute. We have one minute. So, may I gently remind us of two quotes? Gandhi said, "The best argument against Christianity is Christians." Similarly, the best argument against Islam is Muslims. Secondly, Lord Acton said, "Power corrupts." Absolute power corrupts absolutely. Are we not aware what nation is going around the world and starting wars? Not red China, not even Russia. Power corrupts. God have mercy on us all. Okay, so uh, I hope you have a great week. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Woo! Um, uh, Hebrews 5 and 6 for next week, I believe. Uh, there is a schedule that's been published. Zev will pick up next week going forward in the book. 
God bless you as you think about these profound things and have a great day.